0: Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode was recorded live at Edge Computing World in October 2022. It features an interview between Matt Truffiro and Rika Nakazawa, Group Vice President, Connected Industry and Sustainability for Americas at NTT. Rika is a global applied innovation and sustainability senior leader advancing business where digital transformation drives the greatest value. As a senior leader in the New Ventures and Innovations Group, she's building NTT's connected industry team, advancing how part of Edge as a service delivers business transformation outcomes. Rika is a frequent conference speaker and chair, with more than 15 years of business development, partnership management, innovation, design thinking, and strategy deployment experience. She was featured on the CRN Women Power 70 list and is on the advisory board for VRAR, AI Machine Learning, and IoT startups, and advancing initiatives for women in technology and leadership. In this episode, Rika tells her story of becoming a leader in tech and how she arrived at NTT. She defines the role that connected industry plays within sustainability and provides her thoughts on the future of edge computing, including private 5G, blockchain, and the metaverse. Rika also provides advice for aspiring women in tech. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
1: Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com for more information, or click on the link in the show notes.
2: Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end-user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe, and it will improve performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org where you can download the original Open Grid Manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including
0: the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trufiro and Rika Nakazawa, Group Vice President, Connected Industry and Sustainability for Americas at NTT. Today, I'm
2: here with Rika Nakazawa, and she is the Group Vice President of Connected Industry and Sustainability for the Americas at NTT. We're going to talk about Rika's background in technology, her journey through the world of technology, her work at NTT, and her views on the present and imagined future of edge computing and sustainability. Hey, Rika. How are you doing today?
1: Great. So, Matt, why do I feel like, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, so when I hear about The Over the Edge podcast. I feel like I'm in the beginning of like the Joe Rogan of Edge podcast for the future, like one of the founding second season members of this podcast. So I'm super excited to be here.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you. It's funny. I I actually meet people now and they're like, oh, I know you from your podcast and I never expected that to happen. So we do have a listenership and it is growing. So one of the things that, I mean, I spent about 20 minutes looking at your LinkedIn profile. You have a very rich history I mean, everything from Amex to Accenture with Sony and venture capital and Nvidia thrown in between. So, you've done just about everything. But what I'm really interested in is how did you get interested in technology at all?
1: Let's see. There's a lot of different dimensions to that question. Um, I'll start with saying, because I've been a woman in tech, this is something that's very near and dear to me, but I was a girl in STEM. So, I went to the international school, born and raised in Japan went to the international school and I took math and physics and organic chemistry and just really fell in love statistics. Oh my gosh, when I try to remember all those challenges and problems. But so I really loved STEM and actually STEAM, S-T-E-A-M. I was into the arts as well. So we had this thing called the uh, International Baccalaureate and I took four higher courses and two subsidiary. My four higher were English, art, and then math and chemistry. Were the four. okay, so complete left brain, right brain were always at war, and when I was going to college, I didn't really have the role model of somebody in technology. My father was an engineer, but it, but he went into business and worked for the big trading houses, so classic businessmen. And so when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. And fortunately for me, because of my high school degree and what I did with the International Baccalaureate, I could skip a year. But the problem was if you were going to skip from freshman year to junior year, you need to declare your major. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. so You're in
2: danger of graduating?
1: I'm in danger of graduating, exactly. And so, uh, so I took some time off from school. And uh, when I try to go back to school, it was around the time that Sony bought Columbia TriStar. And back this, I'm now completely going to date myself, but this is back when Japan was buying everything, right? When Japan was this enigma of the Japanese power, the Japanese were buying the Statue of Liberty. Well, I don't know if they were buying the Statue of Liberty, but I do remember a Time Magazine article on the front cover was a Statue of Liberty in a kimono to make the point that the Japanese are buying everything, Right. And it was a huge debacle. There was a book called Hit and Run, how John Peters and Peter Guber took Sony for a ride. And at the time, I was thinking, gosh, that's what I should do. I should get involved in Japan, U.S. business. And I literally wrote Sony on a napkin. And it really tells to the story of how thoughts are things, like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and all the other affirmation programs that are out there that are absolutely phenomenal. So I planted the seed of Sony. And then when I was... In my senior year in college, I read about, and this is the early days, again, going to date myself, early days of the internet. And there was an article written about Independence Day 4 and the website, how the website was this phenomenal website with Shockwave and all these, for you cool kids today, I know you don't know what Shockwave is. But anyway, so I uh, made an excuse to interview one of the producers of the website. And so I was like, I'm a student. I want to interview you. And they were doing this together with Sony. And as I was talking to them, I said, oh, by the way, I'm really interested in Sony. I would love if you have any connections. And so lo and behold, they connected me with somebody, submitted my resume, didn't hear back. And then a few months later, I got a response back from Linda Keeler, who was a, a vice president at a small group within Sony called Columbia TriStar Interactive. And it was this rogue group. Right, that's what we called everything interactive to Everything mean. interactive, rogue yes. group of revolutionaries. And so I interned there. And then as I was graduating, they offered me a full-time role, which was not trivial because I was still an international student. I'm a Japanese citizen. And back then I was still on an F-1 visa and transferring over. So lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, by virtue of pure accident of what I think I wanted to pursue, I ended up getting this job with this group of revolutionaries at Sony, Pic- what was to become Sony Pictures Entertainment um, Online. But it was Columbia Tricer Interactive. And so we were there with innovators. We were doing things like Dawson's Desktop. Do you know, have you heard? I don't it? know what okay. Dawson's Desktop Dawson's is. Dawson's Creek, remember okay, Dawson's Okay, I do. So all the fangirls of Dawson's Creek had the opportunity to look into Dawson's desktop, his PC desktop, his email, what he put into his trash. And, you know, it was all very sort of voyeuristic we did that. We did Wheel of Fortune online. We did uh, a lot of uh, Jeopardy online. So it was really, really the early days. And for anybody who's listening to this and knows the name Robert Turcic, I knew Robert Turcic before Robert Tursik was Robert Tersek. You know, he's Robert's one of these extraordinary trailblazers now in the world of transformational technology. So I was there with the likes of Richard Glosser, R- Ira Rubenstein. I'm completely name dropping here, totally shamelessly. But I was with those, with those extraordinary pioneers in the world of, of interactive, of the early days of the internet.
2: Yeah, so I have to ask you this because in a previous life of mine, I co-founded a company called Wink Communications, and we had Toshiba as an investor. And through Toshiba and Sony and Panasonic and a couple of other Japanese companies, we had the basis of our technology written into Japanese law. And we were adding interactivity into the closed captioning. We're putting code, basically, into the closed captioning portion of an analog video signal. So I'm wondering if you came across any of that.
1: Not exactly that. So, so what was really interesting, Steve Jobs has this wonderful phrase of, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backwards. I didn't come across that. But my arrival to NTT now is actually quite nostalgic. And and let me share the story with you. So I met Sony in Los Angeles, having the time of my life in this new world order of the internets, in the world of entertainment, and hence the whole theme around disruption. So I was right out of the gate. I was in this role of disruptive tech, which became the hallmark for my career moving forward. I went back to Japan. My father fell ill, so I went back to Japan and when this a startup in Japan saw my resume, they're like, oh, she has internet experience. You know, she's, she, we, we got to have her. And so I had the luxury of joining China.com, which was the IPO. I was an early, early IPO, you know, Dinier I had no idea sense, what I was. Yeah. Yeah. But 1999, oh wow, now I just gave like away my, my true ageism here. But so in 1999, NTT Docomo launched this platform called iMode.
2: I remember iMode. iMode, I right? Yeah.
1: So iMode was iTunes before iTunes was iTunes. So I am sorry, but Apple is an amazing company. But NTT Docomo really were the trailblazers around creating a walled garden of content that they worked with the community of developers to create that. So I wasn't aware of that part, but I was there... When the Japanese were really making waves around new ways and innovating models and policy and different instruments around that, yeah. So yeah, so in some ways I was, and I and I was early early enough and old enough to remember the double bite challenges. Remember that (laughs) the whole double bite with the Japanese kanji and everything, but uh, and probably. Oh yes, right. Yes. yes.
2: mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember that. You know, you're you're currently group vice president. I have to look to read this all. Group 5 president Connected Industry and Sustainability. So first of all, what is a connected industry and how does that relate <laughs> to sustainability?
1: Excellent. I'm so glad you asked that, Matt. Okay, so if you think about Industry 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and then Industry 4.0, which is what everybody was heralding as the next wave of the way that technology and digitalization was going to transform industry, right, right? As we come out of COVID-19, it seemed too simplistic to think industry 5.0 because that made it entirely too linear. Right. And, and we all kind of went into this weird...
2: And we never got to four.
1: Not only did we never get back to four, but COVID-19 was this magic ball of chaos where we resurfaced and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And then we resurface again. It's like, what's my job?
2: Why am I going in an office? Do I ever have to do it <laughs> like, again? Right?
1: You know, what state am I living in? Why am I living here? So it was like a constant magic eight ball of things. And so I don't think it was linear anymore in the business sense, all joking aside, right? Enterprises and industries were massively disrupted and everybody had to, you know, you know, the movie Spaceballs and, you know, ludicrous speed. Like we have to ludicrous speed our way through digitalization. And so... For us at NTT, and when Shahed asked me, and Shahed Ahmed is our executive vice president who founded the New Ventures Innovation Group at NTT, when he asked me to join and we're thinking about, okay, so how do we talk about this next generation of the way that we translate technology to outcomes? Accenture, and I work for Accenture, so my I bow to my alma mater of sorts, and we have some Accenture folks here. Uh, there's an industry X group damn it, that's so cool. I wish they hadn't taken that. Like X,
2: like the X-Men? Yeah, like the (laughs) the
1: X-Men. So they're industry X. We're like, okay, well, they took that. Okay, so what are we going to call this? And we really wrangled for a while. And then we thought, why are we trying to think so deeply about this? It's connected industry. And it's as simple as that. And not to make it monolithic either. It's not like, oh, it's an industry and now we're going to figure out how to connect you. It's more about... The fact that it's all interconnected—that's our phrase at NTT.
2: Do you mean that both technologically, but also in the sustainability sense? Is how the sustainability comes. I mean,
1: sustainability is one of the key objectives that companies are looking to meet in their digital transformation journey, right? So we think about when we talk about bridging technology to outcomes. It's like, okay, are you worker enablement? Is it productivity? Is it risk and compliance? Is it sustainability? I don't want to diminish the role of sustainability is a big thing for me, but when our clients are trying to think about how they're going to leverage digitalization and bang on the door of the CIO, bang on the door of CTO, it's all kinds of stakeholders who are doing that. And so sustainability is one, but there's a whole host of other outcomes that now the CIO needs to answer to in terms of how an organization is going to operate. Because for us, we see this really beautiful convergence of IT and OT, and Varying industries and varying companies are at different stages of it. And so that's, that's where we came to Connected Industries because we really feel like that that connectivity is fundamental and table stakes for the data to travel, for the intelligence to be derived, and for decisions to be made.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's come back to that because okay. a lot we can talk about yeah. there. Before we do that, I want to help people understand a little bit more about NTT. So okay. NTT is a giant company. And I know it more historically than current. It was formed in the 1950s after at and after the post-war when at and left the infrastructure. And it was a state organization, as I understand it. Today, that's a tiny piece of it. NTT does a lot of things. Can you give us a, just a, a wide sweeping view of what ties all these different businesses in NTT together and what, what are the, the businesses that NTT is involved in?
1: Yes. Yeah, so NTT, I, look, when uh, Shahed came to me and he was at NTT, again, it was very nostalgic. Having grown up in Japan, you had the I'm actually, the logo is on my lapel here. It was on manhole covers. NTT stands for Nippon Telegraph Telecommunications. Telegraph is obvious. Yeah, we use telegraph and telephone, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, telegraph, <laughs> telecommunication. And so where NTT is today, there's a holding company, which is headquartered in Japan, And underneath the holding company are a number of different divisions. And so you'll have NTT Docomo and NTT Communications. Those have now merged. We have NTT R&D. We spend close to, I think it's $4 billion on R&D, which is a sizable chunk. That's how committed we are. And we're doing some really interesting things around optics and communications called ION. And I could actually talk uh, uh, actually, I would ask somebody else to talk more knowledgeably about that. But I love the work that we're doing there. NTT Limited, which was the group that I joined a little over, about almost a year and a half ago now, NTT Limited was the infrastructure and managed services company. I'll just simplify it that way. That's not the official official way to talk, but the fiber optics in the in the ocean, the connectivity, the networks, data center.
2: Did did Vario get rolled up into that group?
1: What happened was in 2019, about 32 to 35 companies came together. As NTT Limited. It was a combination of multiple companies that came together as Limited. Most people know NTT Data. NTT Data has done a phenomenal job of being out there as thought leaders, of sponsoring, and their name and their logos are on the side of buildings. So most people know NTT Data. NTT Data is an incredibly powerful division within NTT that has done a lot around systems integration, application development, and also has been very active in acquiring a number of different companies. I think Vario was NTT Data, now that I think about it. So very good job of buying multiple companies. NTT Data and NTT Limited, so the infrastructure, call it the bottom-up area from the infrastructure on up to the cloud, edge, managed services, and then NTT Data, that does a lot of the application layer and a lot of the systems integration. We came together on October 1st of this year, and we are now the infrastructure and the application systems integration company. So fully, uh, we basically have the ability to help our clients around their digitalization journey. We have very strong consultancies within our organization, and we have the assets that are able to deliver on a lot of the digital transformation roadmap that clients are looking to deploy. And increasingly, we're taking it from an industry vertical approach because there's more specialization that needs to happen based on industry verticalization. You can't say anymore, I'm going to help you with your LAN or your network or your data center. It starts to become very relevant. It has to be contextually relevant because of the convergence of OT and IT. And a lot of the operational aspects of it need to take into consideration the stakeholders that are going to be very, depending on the industry that you're working with.
2: Yeah. Can you give us like a really concrete example of one of your clients and where they started and where you've taken them to?
1: I'm part of the New Ventures Innovation Group, and we launched something called Private 5G. Okay. About this tiny little thing called Private 5G. (laughs) It's a big deal, right? It's all the buzz now. But it's a private 5G network that we can run as a managed service for our client. And so this is public knowledge, but we announced our, our collaboration with Schneider. Okay. So Schneider is also on the leading edge. Mm-hmm. Right around the data center and, and and how they're providing electricity infrastructure and other things to clients and very, you know, incredible partner of ours in other respects. But we're helping them with their factories because one of the biggest challenges in manufacturing is that Wi-Fi is not reliable. It breaks down because of the concrete walls, especially in high hazard environments, which, you know, in, in factory environments, you have a lot of different scenarios. But increasingly, one of the topics that has come up during COVID-19, because of the proliferation of endpoints of data input and output is security, right? Yeah. So we worked with Schneider to deploy a private 5G network in one of their facilities to test out some use cases. Okay. So things around machine vision and AGV, and I can't go into too much detail. But with them, what we've done is we've really helped them think about the smart factory of the future. Because... Part of the private 5G conversation isn't necessarily, well, what can we do today? There, is, there are elements of, here are some use cases that we can tackle today. But the forward-thinking companies like Schneider are really thinking about how do they future-proof themselves? Because if they're going to invest in infrastructure today, it needs to be something that's going to keep up with the speed of change, which has dramatically accelerated during COVID-19. So we've helped them, and we are also helping an automotive manufacturer that I can't name, unfortunately. They have a huge facility in a place in the U.S., which I can't name either, but they have a huge facility, and one of the challenges that they were having is that there's a train track that runs through the facility. Their AGVs, Autonomous Guided Vehicles, are not the little things that you see on the floors of Amazon, right, that carry the stacks of things around their AGVs are honking big vehicles that carry other vehicles around the lot. And so for them, they need to have reliable Wi-Fi outside, right? And, and it's, a, it's a, again, a huge footprint of geography. God forbid that suddenly the network goes down or something happens and that AGV with the very expensive vehicle is smack in the middle of the train track kind of thing. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit for, for you know storytelling perspective, but... For them, it was really about thinking about how are they going to leverage private 5G to facilitate, and as we know, during COVID, right, the automotive industry, the rush of demand was just phenomenal. And the automotive industry, they're continuing to change where they're becoming mobility companies. And there are, as we talked about today, vehicles are becoming edge devices, right? So very much a digitalized footprint that automakers are having. And so we're working with this one particular one, they have a couple of key use cases that they have in mind that are critical, absolutely mission critical, because for anybody that's in manufacturing, you know, downtime is a big, yeah. big challenge, right? It's, it just throws, a, it throws a, a wrench into the whole, the whole um, process. So across a number of different industries, we're starting to, at least around private 5G we've been really helping with their transformation roadmap and how they future-proof themselves, how they set themselves up for an agile way that, can, that they can continue to harness emerging technologies like private 5G.
2: Yeah, so what does that mean at a practical level? So I often ask the question, what is the difference between on-premises computing and edge computing? There is a difference, obviously, but it's hard to tease out what the difference is because we're putting computers and workloads at the edge. And I think it comes down to some of these softer qualities like agility, and when you say, well, how do I have agility? Well, that may mean that it's not an isolated, siloed, single vendor solution that's operating entirely on-premises. It may be extending back to the cloud. It may have some of the compute off-premises, that there's a, a continuity through the, right. entire, the entire cloud. When you think about what are the transformations that are happening, when you say digital transformation for a manufacturer, what does that mean? Like, what, what are the things that are most important to their objectives?
1: The way that I would frame it is that, so it's not just edge in isolation, mm-hmm. right? It's about the ability to do edge computing with the ability to have faster connection through private 5G, lower latency, higher data throughput. And you don't have, especially with the private 5G that we're working with, we have the notion of micro slicing. So quality of service has become in, uh, inherently needed mm-hmm. when a, when in manufacturer, because you have a lot of competing devices, you have a lot of competing needs for connectivity. And so it's not just edge in isolation. It's about the ability for you to transmit data and relevant data at the edge and to be able to enable that processing to happen real time. And not just from one source, but multiple sources and Mm. to be able to synchronize that. And so when we work with our clients, it's, you know, P5G becomes part of a total way to think about edge as a service, which is what we call it. So It's edge computing, it's the IoT, so being able to have the relevant sensors to be able to capture the data and be able to not, I mean, you don't need 5G for everything, right? You can have what we call zero G, and you can have, you know, LoRa and other technologies that are gonna be able to. Zero G, is that Ethernet? Zero, (laughs) zero. The race to zero. It's wires, it's wires. I have this notion of, you know, from zero to hero, or rather zero be hero. But yeah, so for us, it's really about the choreography of data, network, and intelligence that's really going to help you be able to harness what you can do. And as you said, it's a continuum. Sometimes you're going to have things that just stay on-prem, quote-unquote, and then other times there are things that you need to have go out back out to the cloud and back again. And so it's really a choreography. So Edge combined with AI is really going to be what helps you automate some of those things because you you know it's high tax and high lift to imagine trying to track all of those things and so it's bringing together all of those pieces and components but again you have to do it in a way that's contextually relevant so in the manufacturing If you're working with a petrochemical company, there's probably going to be certain things like the devices have to be friendly to those environments. Mm. Like a PC can't have a fan because if it's a petrochemical, you have corrosive chemicals that are flying through the air that are going to destroy. I mean, there's all these things that you could really drill down into. And so um, one of the things that we're doing at NTT as it relates to the application, because it's not about the speeds and feeds. It's about intersecting technically feasible with strategically relevant and usable. So the whole design thinking aspect of how you deploy these things are also very important because you can't just look at technology in absence of thinking about how are people going to use it and how do you derive the value in a way that's going to be relevant to the key stakeholders to be able to say, here's my ROI.
2: Yeah. And earlier in the interview, you were talking about your business being outcome-based, that Mm -hmm. there's a, a very much focus on the outcome. And I imagine if you're a manufacturer, you're looking to lower your costs, improve your quality, reduce your downtime. I mean, all of those things. And so when you do a a customer engagement like with a, like to modernize a factory, are those the kind of metrics that you're working with your clients on is like these, like very specific outcomes that come down to real business value?
1: So the, conversations, if they go to a TCO only, then you, it starts to become commoditized, right? If it's just total cost of ownership. What you have to do is think about TCO in combination with what's the value that you're deriving out of. So for example, in manufacturing, for anybody who's listening to this or anybody here today, you know, one of the biggest challenges that manufacturing industry has is worker shortage. I mean, that's been the case in general during COVID-19. But in specific interest in logistics too, right? There's a lot of worker shortage. And so how do you use these technologies to help you with worker enablement, right? How are you going to be able to get speed to on production site faster for the new trainee in a way that really facilitates them, especially because from an experience perspective, it's hard enough to get somebody on site. And then once they're on site, you want to make sure that they stay so that they're not frustrated and trying to get trained up on something. So the KPI might be around work experience and talent retention. Or the key metric could be around efficiency and worker safety. Safety is a huge issue, like in manufacturing. Yeah. So safety and security is, is one of the things that is also because how do you put the price on a human life, right? Making sure that you are you can use machine vision or to detect PPE or making sure that somebody that's not supposed to be in a place doesn't go in that place. There's a lot of ways to break down with the, how you define the value. And so we run these workshops, Art of the Possible workshops, that really start to examine what are the key use cases and for whom. And how are we amplifying the quality or quantity of a thing. And boiling it down to total cost of ownership doesn't really recognize those avenues, especially for an organization that's trying to future-proof themselves. Because there's still, you know, there's three levels of knowing. You know what you don't know. Well, you know what you know, hopefully. Uh, you, You know what you don't know, and then you don't know what you don't know. And so when you're harnessing emerging technologies, there's still a lot of you don't know what you don't know. So part of what my team does within Connected Industry is that we co-innovate with our clients. We come into the sandbox together and we're like, okay, what is it that you're trying to solve for? What are the building blocks that NTT could bring together? And we have a powerful, powerful arsenal of building blocks that we could help our clients with trying to solve those challenges. Let's prove it. Let's do a proof of value pilot in production. And then once we prove what that value is, let's write the playbook so that you can then take that playbook to another facility. Not that it's gonna be apples to apples, of course, but the hope is that once we build a playbook for you, you can get a faster time to market to deploy and scale that. So it's really about coming in, identifying what the values are, putting some qualitative quantitative measure to it, identifying the key use cases, getting the right stakeholders around the table and agreeing that if we're going to intersect technical feasibility with strategic relevance and usability, this is what success looks like. Once we prove that out over a three to six month period, let's write the playbook so that you can take that to another facility in Mexico or you know Stockholm or wherever in the world it's going to be. And of course, that's going to be relevant to Spectrum as well. So as a global company, that's one of the benefits that we bring to a global organization is that you just need to work with us and we'll help you facilitate these things in other Pockets around the world pending spectrum availability and the way that we can make that happen.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like you're acting as a strategic consultant, an architectural consultant, a system integrator, and a managed service provider. Correct. Sort of all That's maybe right. all at once, but it's it sort of <laughs> a, through the whole life cycle. And I, can't imagine a small company doing that because that, that is quite a lot of resources to bring to bear mm-hmm. to solve a, solve a problem. That's, that's really interesting. And, you know, we talked about the, the sort of outcome-based services. And I noticed it was either on the NTT website or maybe it was on your LinkedIn profile. There was a, a reference to NTT offering sustainability as a service. Right. So that, that's fascinating. It sounds very outcome-based.
1: Yes. So first of all,
2: what, how do you find a sustainability? What does that mean?
1: <laughs> From the announcements that we did at Mobile World Congress, uh, sustainability is really focusing on net zero for us in that announcement. Okay. And really the focus is on climate. And I'm glad you asked that question because sustainability is many things depending on where clients are thinking about it, what their motivations are. For us... One of the things that I and I've been in a number of client conversations around the sustainability agenda. First, they want to know what are you doing, NTT, to be green. And I'll use the word green because it's convenient. But they'll be like, okay, so we need to manage our scope three. What are you doing to help make sure that when we do our ESG reporting or 10 q 10K in our reporting, that our vendors, our partners, our providers are checking the box for us. So we'll be like, okay, here here are our, our commitments, and then. The conversation, or quite organically, goes to, well, what are you doing for Scope 1, Scope 2? Like, is there an opportunity for us to move from how we are being green for your IT to how do we make IT for green? So how do we use infrastructure technologies and other ways to help you with your carbon footprint, right, and the climate equation? So... What we announced two weeks ago in Las Vegas was a net zero impact solution in industry's first full end-to-end capability to do that. And that follows on the heels of announcement that we had. We soft launched something called IoT for Sustainability back in March of of this year. We're still in 2022, right? Yeah, we are. (laughs) Okay.
2: (laughs) Just a little bit longer.
1: I know. It's just uh, COVID has had this uh, impact of time warping. So... For us, when we talk about sustainability as a service, it really is around taking key elements of thinking about your infrastructure and the ways that you are, A, figuring out what you want to measure, how you measure it, how you report it, how you display it from a dashboard across multiple key stakeholders, and then what can you do to improve it using IT and using technology, and there's a raft of different ways that you could do that, and for us, to your point, it is first consulting led because we need to meet our clients where they are. Because different clients are at different points of their journey around sustainability. And so we're on that journey right now, especially for IoT for sustainability, with the IoT group is run by my colleague Devin Young. And so he's built this whole portfolio of saying, here are the devices that we can use around water management, so water waste management, pollution detection, and other ways that we can use IoT to measure things. Because if you don't measure it, then how do you know know, what impact it has and how to improve it? So being able to use IoT and then the network and connectivity to be able to communicate those things and then to be able to intelligently display them to the people that need to see them is one of the ways that we can help our clients leverage technologies and IT for their own ambitions around sustainability. So we believe that we have this full stack solution in the sense that we're not going to monolithically go to a client and say, this is what we're going to do for you. It's more like we have these building blocks. Let's understand where your, where your key challenges are today and how we can help you achieve some of the goals that you have. And what are some goals that you don't even know, realize that you could achieve? Right. You don't know what you don't know. So that's the journey that we're on. And one of the bigger areas is data center. We have a very big data center footprint. We we have the cloud providers in our data centers too. So we're right there with them. And fortunately, everybody has a sustainability pulse coursing through their enterprise veins. So it's not that far flung for us to say, okay, as we greenify our data centers and get to our commitments there, right, how is that going to in turn help our clients with their data center or their carbon Footprint as a Scope Three provider around their data center and Schneider, they're very vehemently focused on how they're going to improve the sustainability profile of data centers, and so that's another thing that we've been working with Schneider on. Stay tuned on that space. I don't think I can disclose much at the moment, but um, they've been great partners with us in that regard as well.
2: Yeah, it, it seems like it's a it's a bit of a paradox in a way because all of us in this room are using and deploying devices that consume resources. They all use electricity. And the more that we put out there, the more radios we put out there, the more servers we build, the more energy we're going to use. And so how do we resolve that paradox? Is sustainability, in your view, is the vector of sustainability going to cross the vector of growth? You know, I mean, is there a, is there a, (laughs) can we keep up with it? Can our energy efficiency sensors and servers that are processing those sensors actually save more energy than they consume along with what they're measuring? <laughs>
1: That's like above my every grade, <laughs> like my pay grade, my school grade. The my... answer is yes, right? Yeah, uh, Yes. Well, so, you know, some of it is physics, right? Um, and some of it is just fundamental policy and also um, a mindset shift and habit shifts that needs to happen at the It's just like this whole ball of organic yarn. (laughs) But the way that I think about it is that there is the notion of circular economy, recycling. So we can get much better with that. Let's manage the e-waste better. Let's figure out. And that's one of the things that we're focused on, too, with our clients is as people move to software-defined everything and hardware and recent said software is eating the world and so hardware becomes less and less not less relevant but not as needed is how do you recycle these things in a way so it's regenerative how do you use it for something else and you know there's a lot of smart brains and smart minds that are working on this Gerard from McKinsey said this morning right it's a two seventy five trillion dollar market over the next thirty years ten trillion dollars every month and all these decacorns and unicorns that are going to be Created. So I, I'm super optimistic that we are going to find a way to get there, especially with the next generation of entrepreneurs that are really focused on the space. I interviewed Jim Adler for my book, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment too. But Jim Adler founded Toyota Motor Ventures, was the general partner that started that up. And in 2020 was the first year that they had a sustainability fund. So it was a, I think it was a $500 million fund that they started, right? And in talking to other leaders for my book, it's just been really inspiring hearing about how there's all this commitment to focus on this space. Because one of the things that we forget sitting in this room here in Santa Clara, the heart as well, San Francisco would argue, but Santa Clara would say that they're at the heart of Silicon Valley. It's easy for us to forget that there's other parts of the world. There's 300 million people in India that don't have access to electricity.
2: That's astounding. Yeah.
1: 300 million people in India. So I saw this this video with this woman that said, so tell me, are you telling me that the constraints that you, America, is putting on the rest of the world around sustainability and energy consumption, you're going to withhold the opportunity for 300 million people to get access to electricity, which is about, you know, a little bit less than the population of the United States, Right. So we have to think about that because when we think in in this conference here today, we're like, okay, so you know unicorns and we're going to do all this recycling, regenerative, it's all going to be beautiful. Meanwhile, there's still some things that have to happen and trade-offs that have to happen for equity for these other countries to be able to, quote unquote, catch up with where we are. And and the United States is still the largest consumer of electricity, by the way, right? So... I wish I could simplify it and say, yes, you know, there's going to be this this intersection where the sustainability is going to help bring us to carbon negative. And by the way, that's that's been a really interesting debate. Like I saw an advertisement from a very big name brand, Consumer Package, like we're carbon positive. And I was like, wait, yeah, wait, is yeah
2: it, exactly.
1: <laughs> is it carbon positive or is it carbon negative? I don't know which way it is. You know, I, and this morning, by the way, the talk that I gave, so this whole idea that we're in this Anthropocene. Right, So the Holocene started 12,000 B.C. Holocene was when the Earth was in its own equilibrium. It was just kind of going on its own, going through its heat cycles, ice age, blah, blah, blah. But it was in an equilibrium over time 12, for 12,000 years. That's been the Holocene. And then we're now in this Anthropocene. Anthropocene being where humans are directly impacting the way that the rest of the Earth is working. And that's frightening. And inspiring, because the way that I, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's, and the Anthropocene started 1950s during the industrial age is roughly when it started when smokestacks and all these things, right? So it's like, okay, uh, Earth is really, I mean, humans are having this impact on Earth. I say, let's make the Anthropocene as short as we possibly can and move to the Anthropobit scene.
2: Anthropobit?
1: Anthropobit. Yeah, it's a mouthful. But let's move to the anthropo-bit scene where humans and technology and digital are working together to create an equilibrium so that we can live and thrive without completely annihilating our ability to subsist collectively.
2: I, I so. like using the word equilibrium to define, in, at least in part, sustainability. That, mm-hmm. that, that to me really really strikes as, as having a truth to it. And I also, I share your optimism. You know, I think that if you look at, I mean, there's an immense amount to go after just in waste. I mean, I I think arguably, and there's some some people smarter than me that have estimated this, but certainly less than 30% of the CPU power on Earth is used at any given time. So 70% of it's wasted. It's probably plugged in. There's probably disks spinning and, and screens on. I mean, think about your phone. How how much of your phone's processor is at use at any given time? And so the ability to double, triple, quadruple, quintuple the number of workloads we run over on the existing servers and on future servers, it just seems like an immense recapture opportunity for us. And then I was reading they did a study on a, on a cellular network. One of the big goals for 6G is is to increase its sustainability as an overall footprint in the, in the technology world. And they've done some studies with just turning off the radios when they're not needed can save up to 40% of the power consumed in a radio network, which is just extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you see those kind of saving opportunities in some of the factory works that you do uh, or some of the, I mean, do, are there huge, like, are there big pieces of low-hanging fruit?
1: Yeah, it goes back to if you don't measure it, you can't, Change it. So baseline with, like, let's figure out how to measure stuff first, right? Let's figure out where the biggest... Burns are where the biggest consumptions are. Where the biggest where the low hanging fruit is because until you measure it, you don't know where the low hanging fruit. You can roughly guess. Good what argument it is, for right? sensors. Yeah. Yeah. No, so and facilities is is one of the areas that we're looking at. So we we have people on my team, not my team, but within NVNI that are part of the working group with the World Economic Forum for future of real estate or property, right? And facilities, and that's something that we're looking at it as well. But I think. With every opportunity that we can find to be able to map and measure what those impacts are. And the other thing that I think I mentioned this in a, in a different session, and I'm going to repeat it because I think it's really important for us to consider this, is that when we think edge, we tend to put a circumference around something and think, oh, edge, like my prem. We have to think that sustainability fundamentally is about considering the causal links of the butterfly that flaps its wings on one side of the earth creating a tidal wave on the other side. And so there's a lot of good intentions that's happening within sustainability and the way that things are going to be managed. But unless we use edge and collectively create a network of edge intelligence to demonstrate the impact that one action and initiative is going to have for a group of stakeholders and where that happens downstream or upstream, then we're going to be in a worse place. Or we just export our pollution, and export our carbon footprint to other parts of the world from north to south, which is one of the big agenda items that we Yeah, it's, a-
2: it's both exciting and probably unnerving to start measuring all those externalities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Matt, I mean, you know, gosh, uh, people, people, people are getting drinks. We should probably invite them up here and start talking about this because... <laughs> This whole topic of like, you know, are we are we doomed? <laughs> like, are, What are we doing? It's like the myth, I don't know if you know the myth of Sisyphus. The myth of Sisyphus is like rolling a rock up the hill, just knowing that it's going to roll back down and you just kind of resign yourself to that. <laughs> no, it's fruitful. Like everything that we're doing in every moment. And that's the other thing. I, I feel like what we have to do is we have to have moments like this. We have to have podcasts like yours. We have to have conferences like Edge Computing World. We have to have all these billions of points of light in our galaxy of conversation that illuminates the way forward. Because if you, as a single human being, if you try to imagine what impact us or a group of people could have, it's overwhelming. But as long as we can come together and really not just talk about it because it's a hot topic, we must talk about it. But let's find ways to be able to get the small wins that eventually lead to some of the bigger opportunities.
2: Let's turn to the future. And I have basically two questions. So one of them is when you look out at the future, and whether this is from a business standpoint or even a personal standpoint, like, but with a, the lens of edge on it, what's most exciting to you?
1: What is most exciting? So blockchain excites me. And that's a whole other debate, right? The whole crypto world and how bad <laughs> as that is. As an investor or as, like, as a technologist? As in, as in, no, as a, as a technologist, I'm, I'm not much of an investor. You're no I don't, I'm not a hodler. Hodler, is Hodel. that the term? Hodler, hodler. But I think that blockchain and DAOs, right? The distributed autonomous organizations, the ability for communities to come together to create transparency around things which is also i think going to help the ag- sustainability agenda and pierce through the veil of that's a really of interesting right you can't alter going- the
2: records of your your pollution it's going to be no, pretty no. clear i
1: mean Einhauser an- bush did this really cool thing where you can like that on some of their beer cans i'm not a beer drinker so i this is not empirically validated full disclosure but apparently you can scan a barcode or something on one of their cans and it tells you what the source of the barley is.
2: It's <laughs> like the farmer? The name of the farmer?
1: Yeah, <laughs> the name of the farmer. Farmess, it could be, you know. That's true. I just made that word up. I was like, uh, yeah, I, you know, Farmess. Let's say taking chairman, the gender chairwoman, piece. chairwoman, <laughs> chairperson, yeah. Ch- chairwoman, chairperson. So I'm pretty excited about this whole idea of Web3 and DAOs and blockchain I think that it's going to create an opportunity for us to get past a lot of the challenges and issues that we have around some of the not to wax political but neoliberalism and, and, and you know the, the way that you know, make X great again and a lot of that you know being bicultural and having grown up multicultural, it's really hard for me to understand that ethos, although I get it on an intellectual level. So I'm pretty excited about how technology is really going to break down barriers and help us really uh, unite and that's also why i think sustainability is a good topic to create a culture in absence of one in a lot of pockets today so i do a lot of work in d and i i have been doing a lot of work what, what in what is that diversity equity inclusion okay thank you actually it was diversity inclusion diversity equity inclusion diversity equity belonging and inclusion And my position now is that diversity, equity, inclusion will, in some ways, take care of itself if we can help organizations really anchor around culture. I think culture is in a crisis. Mm. And so I think that the way that organizations thrive is through culture, and the way that you can align a purpose, purpose purpose-driven business, is a big topic as well. And I think that technology can really help us really create that point of light around key areas that people want to rally around, like Edge for sustainability or blockchain for metaverse or, you know, all these things. So I'm pretty excited about where we're going. Edge, absolutely. I think AI, intelligence, being able to automate some things that can help the total system work together and create that view on the causal links of everything. I think blockchain, metaverse. Let's talk about metaverse for a moment.
2: Yeah, let's talk about the metaverse, sure.
1: So... I was in a meeting, and this was not NTT related, it was for a company that I advise. And they're like, oh, check out our metaverse that is the portal to other metaverses. And they showed this scene of like a spaceship console. And I was just like, okay. And, um, you know, the developer did a lot of work to create this environment. I worked for NVIDIA back in 2006, and I was like, uh, I mean, did you take some things from Unreal Engine and, like, you know, kind of stitch it together? Because, you know, that the, we've been doing that within the gaming industry for a long time. And so it's really interesting to see the way that people are trying to leverage the notion of metaverse if they haven't been in the gaming industry, for example. And no disrespect, because they're excited about it, which is cool, and that's great. But let's be really intentional when we talk about metaverse. There was a fantastic session earlier where CBS Health and Lowe's and, and Accenture were talking about the ways that metaverse was coming to life in their enterprise. And so, creating these digital twins and all those things, I think that that's really fantastic. I, I, actually, that's going to help around sustainability too, right? If you can create a virtual environment and not waste a lot of resources and people and stuff, right? If you can set up a virtual store, so you know how you're going to merchandise everything, versus having to create a bunch of stuff that you're going to destroy anyway afterwards. So, I think that there's elements of metaverse that I'm really excited about. I'm just, I'm just, I just hope that it doesn't get blown out of proportion, in terms of like Ready Player if it One hasn't like well yeah like Ready Player One have you seen Ready Player One yes, right so it's just like wow like on the one hand that's kind of cool because you can be anybody that you want to be in the met- in that kind of a metaverse but we're very excited about the the, the you know, new ventures innovation that's what we're focused on we're focused on where where things are going and and edge right we're here at this conference celebrating edge and all the different ways that edge is going to transform and innovate Edge has been around for a long time, but edge has come out as a resurgence in a new way, right so edge is the new edge black I don't know like you, yeah. know? <laughs> uh, you know and so I think that there are certain technologies that we're going to see come back again in a, in a new and different way. and honestly, what I hope it does is is that it unites. I'll give another example actually Please. if I may. So I interviewed a woman that is with the Ministry of Digital Transformation for Ukraine. And how I met her was I was at South by Southwest earlier this year. And everywhere she went, it was like the waters parted. Like people just made way for her because everybody knew who she was before she even showed up. Because this is in March. (laughs) And she was the only person from the Ukraine that like rode cross country to Germany, went on horseback. I'm making that part up. She like went through heaven and earth to get to Austin so that she could be there to be the voice of Ukraine at the beginning of the invasion and the crisis there and, and the, the chaos. So, you know, I respected her as she was moving around. And then later on she showed up again. And so I approached her. I said, can I interview for my book? I'm writing a book about ESG digital transformation and the pandemic. So we made an appointment. She was back in Kyiv and she comes on the zoom. And first thing she says, she's like, I'm very sorry, but if the sirens start to go off, I'm going to have to terminate the interview. I was like, of course, right? She's telling me sirens are going to, because there's bombs going off. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. She told me this extraordinary story about the journey that Ukraine's been on. And this is, we had the interview around May timeframe. So when Zelensky came into power, one of the first things that he did was he created this Ministry of Digital Transformation. And the one of the tasks that the ministry was tasked with was to ensure that mobile devices was as prolific as possible in the country. So getting into the hands of the elderly, getting into the hands of the underprivileged, so on and so forth. And as some of you know, probably right near Ukraine in that region is Estonia. Estonia is is very much a model of the digitalized, digitally enabled government for the people. And so in some ways thinking about that model, like, okay, so where do we start? We need to get devices into the hands of our citizens And so they mobilized a whole task force to try to get grandma and, you know, these neighborhoods to use these mobile devices. And when the invasion happened, they massively accelerated what was like a a year roadmap. They shrunk that into a matter of months because they had to. And by the time that when the Russians came in and they had already distributed these mobile devices and oh by the way, sorry, I jumped ahead. Covid happened, so first before the Russians happened—that's <laughs> a weird way to put it—the Russians invaded. Covid happened, so they pulled that timeline in. They're like, we really need to get these devices into the hands of of citizens so that we can communicate with them because everybody needs to be at home. It's a healthcare crisis, the whole thing. So they accelerated that timeline, got these devices into a significantly larger group of people within Ukraine, and then when the Russians invaded. Now they had already embedded a communication means to the people of Ukraine. So whilst COVID-19 was catastrophic and terrible and people died, imagine if Ukraine hadn't mobilized this penetration of mobile devices as a means to weaponize communications against Russia, right? Which is a story that came up in all these things. Yeah. So I bring that story up, Matt, because that's a really good example of something that we're like, oh, mobile phones, how, yawn, let's move on to something more sexy and exciting. It's like, no, actually, this is an example of old technology that became mobilized into creating a new way that a nation state was going to defend their sovereignty. And I thought that that was extraordinary. So these are the kinds of stories of ways that we can reinvent technology and synergize it with other emerging technologies like AI and metaverse and other things that creates a fabric in a way that we don't even imagine what it's like today. But I do hope, I really hope that the direction that we're going around ESG and sustainability and all these other things means that what we have been doing at NTT, which is technology for good, is going to be for not just technology for good, but technology for how we thrive.
2: Yeah, that's nice. We're coming up on the top of the hour. Oh, and We're already? getting overrun by the bar, but I, I, would, I would like to ask one more question. So as a woman in technology who's had a long career, I mean, you're a pioneer in many senses in the technology world. Many people in my audience, many of my peers, many of my friends have daughters. And so what is your advice to the young women and perhaps to their parents from your experience?
1: So, I think fearlessness. Fearlessness is, is actually something that That's we all... That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, fearless, Oh, the, the, girl, the girl in the bowl, the, the, the one in Wall Street where she's standing there with her arms like this. I think that one of the inspirations that should be for women today, the daughters of your friends, is that more women are gaining roles on corporate boards not just public company boards, but private boards, private equity. The numbers are still way too small, but they're gaining ground. And one study that I read that I wanted to bring to this audience here is that one of the roles by which more women are gaining roles on boards is being the chief digital officer. In other words, that role that really orchestrates a lot of the different ways that technology is going to impact functional operations within an organization. And so women have found a way to really play a powerful role in that sense of an orchestrator. Mm -hmm. And so there is an opportunity for women to gain board roles through that. And I would say that women have tended to to make up a large part of a human resources organization, which is now the people office, chief people officer, chief talent officer, thank God, because human resources just sounds way too, you know, 1950s. But so during the pandemic, the boardroom leader the everybody around the boardroom table so let's go to like 2020 may of 2020 the board members were like looking at each other like we need to mobilize everybody everybody needs to work from home and then they're like where's the hr person we need to talk to the hr person prior to the pandemic the chro or the chief people officer wasn't necessarily a a desirable profile for a board it's typically been ceo cfos that kind of thing But now they're like, oh, we need we need the people officer in here. So more women are gaining roles on the board through HR functions and also through the digital functions. And also there's a lot more focus and effort around women founded companies because a lot of the startups and unicorns, the more and more women are gaining the opportunity with the foot in the door around the impact that they can have through those roles And just know that there's more money going into the space. There's more focus going into the space. There are organizations like Chief and Strides, which is a platform that I started a a few years ago with some people around bringing more women on boards. There's more and more focus coming into the space. And here with Topio, I know Topio has been really focused on women of the edge. And I think, you know, Gavin and Philippe and team really focusing on putting the spotlight on celebrating some of the accomplishments that have been happening in the space. Because Ada Lovelace wrote some of the first computer code that we know of, right? And so, and Grace Hopper was yep. another phenomenal stalwart within the space of technology. So there's a lot of really fantastic points of light that should be the inspiration, a lot of focus that's going into this. There's way more that needs to be done, And for example, I was in New York and I was sitting next to a woman that's been doing a lot to get more, and she's Afghani woman. She's not in Afghanistan. She's been working from the U.S., but she's working on how she's going to use blockchain to empower women in Afghanistan. So there's a lot of work that's going on to empower women that are even less, that are even more constrained than we are here in the U.S. and other parts of the West. So I would just say to the daughters that, Oh, and one other thing I'll say. What's been really refreshing is that as I've been talking to these parents, your friends, my friends, they're like, you know what? My kids don't seem to have an, really like focusing on gender equality. Like they don't, they don't see it's not that. Not a thing for them. It's I've a, noticed no. that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's not a thing That's for
2: really them. An, it, you know, they
1: don't see color. They don't, you know. So I don't know. I don't know if it's going to. They just you see know.
2: avatars on Minecraft.
1: <laughs> and like <laughs> avatars. And by the way, media too, right? You see more kick, pardon my, kick-ass women. That you are you can say on, on my right, show. Okay, okay, Kick, kick-ass women that are um, that are really fierce, right? Fierce, fearless, anti-fragile. That are just coming into the space, and it really is about diversity of everything. I, it's this isn't about pro women and all about women. We need to over-index, but we need to celebrate the opportunity that diverse teams bring together, and to be able and in transgender too, right? Another sure. big yeah. area that that's really been surfacing. So. I would give the advice of be fearless, be fierce, just celebrate anti-fragility, and go out and and dare, and, and just know that we are tapping into a very, very, very small fraction of what our capabilities and our potential are. We're tapping into so little of what we know about our human brain, about our capability. We're doing it a little bit metaphorically with all the stuff that we're doing with edge and computing and all those things. But if we can just collectively tap into much more of what we're capable of and change the mindset about how we're programmed ourselves, then then it's limitless what we can accomplish together. So... And also, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would love to connect with you. Here are some of the ways that... Well, that actually is my final
2: question. How can people find you if they (laughs) find all this material interesting and they want to follow up?
1: Yeah, so I'm writing my next book. I published a book last year about women on corporate boards, which is an area that I've been devoting a lot of passion and time to. Dear
2: Chairwoman's the title, right? Dear Chairwoman. It's on Amazon.
1: Yeah, Dear Chairwoman, and thank you (laughs) for the plug. My next book I'm writing about... My thesis for the next book is that Pandemic was a time that we saw ESG and sustainability really rise and accelerate. And I call it a white swan, the white swan phenomenon. Yes, I'm trying to go toe-to-toe with Nassim Taleb and his black swan story. So I'm writing this book, and one of the things that I'm looking for and why I would love for anybody to reach out to me, but particularly young women, parents of women that are trailblazing, is really these points of light where over the past two to three to four years, especially during the time of the pandemic, where this realignment of purpose, right? The great resignation and, and, the, and the quiet quitting and other things that are going on right now is, I think, a renaissance of the human spirit. And what I would really love to examine is how and what ways that human spirit is being amplified and activated through the power of technology and through the power of how we're connecting as individuals and so I would love to incorporate those stories because, like I said, the book is intended to be a constellation of inspiration and stories. And so please reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn. There's a couple of Rika Nakazawa's on there. I'm the one that you can't tell is Japanese, but I Sony, am. <laughs> Nvidia, Sony, Accenture, NVIDIA, Accenture. American
2: Express, yes, NTT.
1: So, and NTT. <laughs>
2: Right. Well, so. thank you, Rika, so much for being on the podcast. We'll put as many links into the show notes as we can for all those resources, including your LinkedIn profile, the correct one, your books. Well, your book? When is your new book going to be out?
1: Well, I'm hoping by Earth Day next year. So April.
2: Okay. We'll watch for it. Okay. Thank you, Rika, <laughs> thank so much.
1: You. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here and look forward to hearing more of your, your shows in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.